Today is the third in our three-story series on how to get unstuck. We're going to jump right in because you're stuck and there's no time to waste. And I love this story. So let's talk about $5 wood. My parents live up in the Adirondacks, and the winters in the Adirondacks are absolutely brutal. It's bitingly cold from Halloween to the end of May. They live on a lake, and it's town tradition to drive a fire truck down the middle of that lake on New Year's Day. The lake's already got ice a few feet thick on it. It easily supports the truck. There are as many street signs for snowmobiles as there are for cars. The place is cold. As a side note, for some reason I thought I remembered that an elephant had once walked across the Hudson River when it froze during a cold stretch in the 20s or 30s or something. I googled around and couldn't find it, but I did find a video of an elephant water skiing down the Hudson River in 1935. I'll put it in the show notes. It's confusing. Anyway, back to the Adirondacks. Because it's so cold, most houses have fires going most of the year. There's a huge need for firewood and the locals provide it. It's a nice little side business. Land is relatively cheap, and a lot of people have a lot of it. They chop wood from their property and set up stands at the end of their driveways. They have hand-painted signs that say $5 per pile of wood and a lockbox on a table where people leave money. It's the Adirondack version of a side hustle. Every driveway has the same price, $5 per pile. Every once in a while, you'll see a car parked as the driver grabs some wood and leaves five bucks in the lockbox, but most of the time, the wood piles sit untouched for weeks. And then there's Jim's driveway. Jim always has three or four cars parked outside, and on weekends, he's usually got a line of people waiting to pay. Jim sits at a fold-out table in a giant coat and gloves, seemingly freezing his ass off, collecting money and making change. The wood at his driveway looks exactly like the wood at the other driveways. So why the line of cars? What do you think? Before I investigated and met Jim, I assumed this house that always had a lot of customers was just undercutting their neighbors, selling wood for three bucks a pop, and hoping to make up for it with volume. But in a twist loyal yet unconfirmed listener M. Night Shyamalan would be proud of, when I parked to check out the hubbub for the first time, I saw a big sign out front that said, Wood, $10 per pile. $10? What is going on? We'll talk it through after a little smooth jazz. This is the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. We accelerate ideas into real companies through our product, the Tacklebox Method, and we play smooth jazz and run through startup tactics every Wednesday on the Idea to Startup Podcast. You're here because you're thinking about an idea, you're ready to launch something, or maybe you're already moving ahead at full steam. We're here to give you the tactical strategy that will give your business the best chance of success. As always, notes for the pod are at gettacklebox forward slash no whisper ideas, and if you like the pod, share it with a friend. And with that, let's go. When I first saw that $10 sign, my heart skipped a beat. You know how much I love these things. $10 and a line when everyone else is charging $5 and had no customers? I got online to buy wood and talk to the owner I've already introduced to you as Jim. While standing online, I saw the rest of the sign that had the $10 price on it. It said, $10 for wood for your meat smoker. A sandwich board next to it read, get the most from your pork shoulder, ribs, or chicken. If you've got bad wood, it doesn't matter how good your meat is. Once the 10-year-old inside of me was done giggling, I focused and realized what was happening. This was a guy who knew his customer and made a decision to focus on them. There was a unicorn sitting at the folding table in front of me. I bought the $10 wood. I don't have a smoker, but I needed to learn more. I told Jim I thought the marketing was brilliant, then asked if the wood he sold was any different from his neighbor's wood. He leaned in close, winked, and said, It's all coming from the same forest, ain't it? I smiled, and he continued. 
but everyone else selling for five bucks is missing the boat. No one cares about what they put in their fireplace. It just has to burn. They'll throw scrap wood, painted wood, wood with nails in it, a shoebox, newspapers, magazines. It doesn't matter. But you'd never throw that junk into your smoker if you're slow cooking a brisket for a bunch of friends coming over for football. So, yeah, it's the same wood, but what people use mine for is way more important than what they use my neighbors for, so they spend more money on it. It's the same wood, but it's also not the same wood, right? I asked when he started the business, and he said he tried it out on a whim a few years back. He chopped a bunch of wood and had some extra, so he put it at the end of his driveway. He sat out there because he smoked cigars, and a few people stopped and asked if they could use his wood for their smoker. Things clicked. And now, his business has expanded. Next to the $10 wood, he's got mason jars filled with his homemade barbecue sauce for 5 bucks a pop, and a homemade pamphlet of smoking recipes for $2. He smokes meats at the end of his driveway on weekends, and he sells pulled pork sandwiches on white bread for 10 bucks. He's done so well, he quit his regular job and does this full-time. He even caters events. He mentioned he's thinking about getting an industrial freezer and selling people meat directly from the end of his driveway. I asked if that was legal, and he looked at me menacingly and asked, why, who are you going to tell? And I changed the topic. And now I want to talk about high ceilings. Peter Drucker wrote a book called The Effective Executive that everyone should read whether you got a company or not. I'm paraphrasing an interview I read from Drucker at some point, but he said that when historians look back on the last hundred years, they won't note the internet or the technological advances themselves. They'll note the choices those advances created for people. A few hundred years ago, very few people had choices. Now, nearly everyone has lots of choices. And Drucker says what historians will note is how woefully unprepared most of us are to make them. Jim, our barbecue guy, made a choice most entrepreneurs screw up. He decided to forego everyone who wanted cheap wood and corner the market on people using high quality wood to smoke meat, which upstate is a lot of people, but nowhere near as many people who make fires daily. There are two lessons you should take away from Jim. The first is a quickie. Products rarely matter all that much. You know this because I've said it and you probably heard it other places, but maybe you haven't internalized it and you need to. Maybe this example will do it. Jim is selling the exact same wood for $10 that's going for $5 less than 100 yards from him, and he outsells those people 50 bushels to one. Specificity leads to trust. Jim's specific knowledge around barbecues leads to that trust. Trust leads to a relationship and to the feeling of being heard, specifically to the feeling of being chosen. By taking this stand, Jim has chosen his customers confidently. There is no more attractive quality than purposeful confidence. Your time is not best spent building a product. Your time is best spent understanding what customer you can give superpowers to, then understanding how to talk to them, how to find them, how to speak to them in a way they trust. That's the hard part. The product is nearly always a commodity. It's rarely as clear as it is for our friend Jim, but that's why I love the example so much. The second thing you can learn from Jim is that you need to go ceiling hunting. Startups fail because of customer indifference. I've said that 1,000 times. But what I haven't said enough is that it's the entrepreneur who chooses the indifferent customer. That customer indifference is entirely on you, and it's entirely avoidable if you start with a tough question. That question is, how will I know if I've done a great job? When you're selling to indifferent customers, you'll answer that question with things like, if they buy the product, I've done a great job, or if they convert, I've done a great job. If you're selling firewood for five bucks, you might say, I've done a great job if I sell five bushels of firewood this week. 
If you're selling to a good customer, the answer to how will I know if I've done a great job will be specific and impactful. Jim knows he's done a great job if customers tell him about how good their barbecue was the previous weekend. If the smoke from his wood created a flavor so succulent, they bring him leftovers just to try. And as Jim tells me, this happens all the time. You cannot afford for the answer to how will I know if I've done a great job to be about you. For bad products and bad entrepreneurs, that answer is always about them, their metrics, their goals. I see far too many people talking about building a $100 million business as the goal, as the purpose for their business. That makes me puke. For great products and entrepreneurs, a great job is demarcated by the overwhelming utility they've provided to their customers. And it starts with choosing the right customers and, most importantly, pricing for the value you create. When I asked Jim if he was ever self-conscious about charging $10 for wood, he looked at me like I was crazy. If I charged $5 like everyone else, he said, it wouldn't be worth my time. And honestly, $10 is a steal for the backbone of great barbecue. The first price of your first product needs to be uncomfortably high. You should feel physically ill charging it. That's how you know you're doing it, right? That's how you keep away the people who don't have that high ceiling. The high price will leave a small segment of people, but that's good because you won't have a ton of bandwidth early on. You can't afford bad customers, only good ones that see the value and will happily overpay for it. If you aren't physically ill by your price point, it's too low. The way the adoption curve works is there will be a very small group of people who have been waiting for what you'll build. You won't need anything but the trust you'll create from the specificity of your product, your marketing, and your acquisition channels to convert them. They'll be amazed that you found them. They'll feel seen, and they'll pay you a lot. To the right of them on this adoption curve are people who won't care quite as much. They'll need a few more features and they'll want all those features for a bit cheaper, and they won't be easy to convince. They'll convert once they see the first customers be successful with your first product, but not before then. This means that pricing high and high ceilings are your key to survival. The buffer from the pricing will give you the resources to expand product scope, marketing scope, and decrease your price for your next customer. The barrier the pricing creates will ensure you only get customers with a high ceiling, which will provide the social proof those second customers will need to convert. Screw up that formula, and you're just another guy in the Adirondacks selling $5 wood. And if you're struggling with positioning, reach out. We're running our new Tacklebox Method program. Email us at team at gettacklebox.com to be considered, learn more, or just to chat with us about your customer. Have a great week.